Kevin Markwick. A warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program.
Oh, there you go. Oh, is that it? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, mother? Oh, can you hear me, mother? It's suddenly gone all northern. Hello, everyone. Kevin Markwick here. That was a bit radio, wasn't it? Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Coming up on the Tower of Power. Thanks, Adrian, for the previous two hours of uh, soul grooviness. Trouble is, we've been sitting here in the studio talking <laughs> and not concentrating on what we're doing. So, tonight's guest... I'm going to say it. <laughs> John Baranachea. No! Yes! Well I keep asking people on with difficult to say names. Who is a... Um, how would you describe yourself, John? A big wig in the... What, in professionally the cog of life? or just like Professionally. Professionally. Um, <laughs> professionally, I'm a... Um, I work for a cinema company. Yeah. Picture House Cinemas. Picture House Cinemas. No relation. <laughs> no relation to the Uckfield Picture House. No. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I used to I used to run a cinema, as you know, in Brighton, mm-hmm. the, the old Duke of York's. Okay. So, well familiar with the, with the historic Picture House. With the area. Family. Yeah, because they're actually a bit older than us, aren't they? It's, uh, well, it is the oldest in the country. Is it? Yeah. Purpose built, Swines. still operating. Swines. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I fought hard. <laughs> To get that title. Was it purpose-built, that one? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. Oh, okay. Because so was mine. But 1916, mine's a a (laughs) Johnny-come-lately. Yeah, you guys came, like, in the middle of the war. I didn't know they were... Yeah, which is ridiculous, really, isn't it? Yeah, because I didn't realise they stopped building most cinemas in the middle of the war, but but Mm. yours got through somehow. Uh, It's Uckfield for you. (laughs) They didn't even know there was a war. No, there's only one F in Uckfield, as we always say. (laughs) See, that's the end of my theme tune now as well. So, what we're going to do in honour of you, because uh, you're not fr- you're not originally from these here parts, are you? Well, I'm I'm closer than you think. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to play this. This is um, Ryan Adams, New York, New York. We'll shuffle through the city on a Fourth of July at five o'clock, waiting to blow. Breaking like a rapper who was making his way to the cities of Mexico. Living in a apartment out on Avenue A, at a tar on a corner of town. Had myself a lover who was finer than gold, but I've been broken, I've been busted up since. Love don't play any games with me anymore like she did before. That would fit in the folds in my wallet And it stayed pretty good Still amazed that I wasn't losing All the loop for the place When I was drunk and I was thinking of you Every day the children they were singing the tunes Out on the streets and you could hear from inside Used to take the subway on the house And then third I would wait for you And not try to hide Love won't play And it games with you Anymore if you don't want it to But honey, I don't blame you Hell, I still love you, New York Hell, I still love you, New York New York I remember Christmas in the blistering cold In the church on the Upper West Side 
Babe, I stood there singing, I was holding your arm You were holding my trust like a child Found a lot of trouble out on Avenue B But I tried to keep the overhead low Farewell to the city and the love of my life These we left before we had to go Love won't play And it games with you And it moment you don't want them to Sweep as she So thing out the door I'll always be thinking of you I'll always love you the New York New York, New York from the Gold Album in uh, 2001. Ryan Adams. That's a favourite of yours, John. That's oh. why you picked it. You've picked all the tracks tonight. I've picked everything today, haven't I? Yeah, it's okay. all your fault. That's what I normally <laughs> say. So tonight we're going to have music from Inglorious Bastards, uh, all about my mother, they live. We're going to have a big section on Thomas Mann. Who is uh, not Thomas Mann? Did I say Thomas Mann? You did say. Although we could talk about Thomas Mann. <laughs> I love Death in Venice. That's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Whoa, whoa! Michael Mann, I think, is what I meant to say. Awesome Wells. We're going to talk about Citizen Kane, Touch of Evil. Uh, we got a bit on um, what's his face? You know, Terence Malick. Malick. Uh, some even some uh, uh, Lynch. David, so see what happens is you go on air and your 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 head just empties. Yeah. Well, I know mine's empty most of the time anyway. <laughs> and uh, some Hitchcock, Casablanca, Third Man, E.T. Oh, just some really, really top draw stuff, actually. Uh, so the next thing, because you picked this um, Springsteen track out. Yeah. Because it's one of his more cinematic ones. I think so. It's, tells, it's a narrative. I mean, a lot of his songs are narrative, but this one's got a sort of Americana sweep to it, and it... Uh, I think it evokes a movie in my head, at least. Okay. Uh, like a lot of songs on that on that album, it's a very cinematic, almost film noirish feel to them. Um, yeah, he hasn't done because he did the Philadelphia thing, didn't he? Yeah, he's done some like he did the wrestler uh, song as well. I think he got a Golden Globe for that, and then the Philadelphia was an Oscar winner. Mm. But it's strange like his his songs almost are movies in themselves, and it's a bit redundant if then you put it on top of a movie in a way, but. I suppose so. No, that makes a lot of sense. So these are your two passions, Bruce Springsteen and Michael Mann. <laughs> it seems. No, they're the things you're expert about. There we go. That's yes, what you that's, said. that's better. My mastermind topic. Your mastermind like to topic. Okay, so in the first round, you do Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yes. And in the second round, you do Michael Mann. Yeah, or if, they, the other if way they'd around. allow to do it, because I know you have to do the general knowledge one, which which is why I haven't signed well, up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. This is uh, Thunder Road, of course, from Born to Run.
So I've got to dip into Bruce, I'm afraid. Bruce. Sorry. <laughs> commerce. The, the, yes. Commerce is important, you know. Yeah, I hear so. It's what keeps us on the air. Okay, here's a break. When we come back, we're going to uh, going to do some inglorious bastards. Yes, they certainly do. Uckfield FM, it's Kevin Markwick show here. Now, don't forget to um, get in touch with the show because we're live here with uh, John and we're talking about films. We're going to get into the meat, the meat and potatoes of it now. Um, and, you know, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of the films we're talking about at Kevin Markwick on Twitter or you can find us on the uh, Facebook on my Facebook page, um, the Kevin Markwick show. Or you can even, if you want to, go to the uh, website and there's a... I'm pointing at it now, look. You, there's a webcam thing, so you can see John in the back of my head. Wharf. And um, it, we, and you can sort of message the studio and tell us to get off the air, that, that this town has standards, you know. Um, so we're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? Inglorious Bastards. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just saying to you, wasn't I, that I got a, a lovely uh, uh, one sheet of it, in, of uh, the Melanie Laurent character. Uh, oh, yes. Because, uh, you know, they had character one sheet posters for yes. this film. And uh, there's one of her holding her 8mm camera saying that she's going to make but a film. But can you imagine, as a cinema owner, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of fantasy that is, this beautiful French woman that owns a cinema? Come on. I know. For I know. us, that must be... <laughs> it's it's right up there, absolutely. You know, changing the readograph in the middle of yeah, the night. I know. It's it fantastic. Was just, I'd never seen that in a film before. Well, the, I think the reason... Yeah, it's obviously... it's a. I mean, I don't think it's his best film. I just think it's, um, it's the one that... It's because of the cinema connection. Yeah, because we're cinema people. It's so, yes. it's so important, isn't yeah. it? I think that whole section on the cinema is just beautiful. It's a beautiful cinema. I love the fantasy of, like, you know, well, spoiler alert. No, just say. Getting Hitler yes. in your own cinema is, I mean, it's got to be it's, it's got to be it, isn't it? And actually, it's a very shorthand way of describing to people how dangerous nitrate film what used to oh, be. I love that. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I imagine at the at the Uckfield Picture House, yes. there would have been at obviously nitrate for of a course decades. nitrate. Oh no, yeah. of course. No, uh, when <laughs> You're like, you, I still got some down there. Well, I did until a few weeks ago. Oh, and you got rid of it. Yeah, I finally managed to get someone to take it because this is lethal yeah. stuff. Yeah, you got to be careful with that stuff. Really careful. No, because you know the old no smoking signs and everything in projection boxes weren't because they wanted a nice clean environment. No, it's because they could, you could die. blow up at any moment. <laughs> well, they. I mean, I think the BFI are the only one. Oh God, we're really going. Yeah. Down. No, 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 this is good, this is good. But the BFI are now the only cinema in the UK with a nitrate license. Right. Uh, you need a license to show nitrate. You do, because it's a, yeah, it's essentially flammable material. So it's like, yeah, if you were, like a gas station would probably need a, some sort of license to, yes. to handle flammable materials. So does a cinema for nitrate. Well, you can get, there's a, on YouTube, actually, you've probably seen it. There's a, um, if you type in nitrate burn, there's cool. um, an American guy who's got this, uh, a 2,000 foot can of nitrate and they set fire to it and it's like a jet engine going off yeah because it burns instantly doesn't it it burns and you, it, it will burn underwater yes that's it, you I cannot that put one, yeah. it out which is why now I mean the Americans called it the booth and <laughs> they keep wanting to call it that over here which is very annoying but it's the box it is the box projection box and the reason that I mean I assume you know why it's called the box I do but I, will, I would love to hear <laughs> you tell me <laughs> Because, you know, in the days when it was in village halls and it was a sideshow, it was a tin box. 
because the, the film was so lethal yeah. that the projectionist would be literally locked inside yeah, it. It was about protecting the audience. And yeah. The projectionist, <laughs> well, let's see what happens. But, you know, my, my, my dad used to run Night Train and he said it didn't, we didn't think about it. We just didn't, you know, it was the, how it was. Yeah, and, and all the walls were lined with asbestos. <laughs> yes. And my, we had these shutters on the portholes. If you pulled the handle in the foyer, all the shutters would come down. And I, as a kid, I so wanted to pull that handle. And <laughs> he he still wanted to lock that projection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he would never let me pull that handle. No, I no. so wanted to pull Do that handle. Do you still handle. have those shutters? Though? No, we don't. We took them out when oh. we converted to two screens. Because yeah, like some of our, like at the Duke of York's, the, the shutters are still there. They're just frozen up. You know, they're just set in. But you can still see them. And uh, whenever I bring someone up to, to look at the box... I've never been uh, in the box, though. Oh, no, you should come Yeah, I should come out and have a look. We should make an appointment on air. We should. Uh, <laughs> but uh, people are fascinated by those because they do just fall in front of the portholes mm. and isolate the, isolate uh, the projection. Uh, isolate the projection, yeah. Is the handle still in the foyer? No, no, the oh. handle's upstairs, so I think it was, it was probably locally... Uh, actioned, right? But uh, but you know, a lot of projection boxes also used to have escapes. They used to have entrances and escapes onto the outside, to roofs and yes. rooftops, and uh, and to the streets. It was lethal. Yeah, so you could just literally escape. And of course, it was a carbon arc. Yeah. Which you know, I mean, now we have a high intensity Zen lamp, yeah. but in those days, it was a naked flame. Yeah. Essentially, it was a chemical. Was it? Is it chemical? It's silver nitrate. Right. Is what it is. So it's not like a limelight, which is like a chemical reaction. Is no. It? What you mean? A, a carbon arc? Yeah. No, no, no. Have you not seen carbon arcs? No. No. Oh, it's. Uh, oh, that's a shame. This is. I'm, I'm putting on a sad face for this. Yeah. 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 Uh, they basically have a, oh man, this is going to get really nerdy, a positive and a negative. Right. And it's basically electrons. When you when you energise the negative, it bombards the positive with electrons. Right. And it heats up and into a naked, white, hot flame. Nice. And there was always an art to keeping the uh, gap exactly right so that it burnt exactly right. And conveniently, just uh, probably, what, 12 inches away is a bit of uh, is a bit nitrate. a nitrate film <laughs> that would kill you as soon as look at you. But what they had were uh, fire traps in the top and bottom of the projector. Because, so, of course, the other thing is if it, we've all seen that bit where the um, safety film burns in the gate yeah, yeah. where it kind of opens up. When it, when it gets locked it and gets, then the, the light burns through it. Burns yeah. through it. Well, safety film just just crinkles up which came in in the mid 50s but nitrate would just <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah, have for those who haven't seen that just yes. watch uh, gremlins go gremlins, for a good example yeah or uh, yeah gremlins Yes, is a good one. that's not a good one for projections. It frightened the bejesus out of you. I mean, the first time I showed it, you hear this, blah, 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 blah. what? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> they didn't brilliant. warn us about that. So, yes, for cinema, uh, people in the exhibition business like us, Inglorious Bastards touches a, an interesting so. nerve. And it's not, like you say, it's not, I, think it, I think it's a better film than, uh, for me, it was a better film than uh, the last one. Was Django. It? Yeah. I quite like Django, but I quite like a lot of Tarantino. I think... There's better and worse ones, but but um, I, I'm always excited when his film comes out, and I'm always surprised and and uh, and have a lot of fun with his films. Yeah. So and it's always, you know, I don't always agree with him, but he's always really provocative and which is the important thing. Yeah. Given I mean, I'm what so we have bored to put of up with movies that are just you know predictable. Like I I go to the movies now for to be surprised more than anything, and like. That, you know, the n not knowing what's going to happen next is so exciting because it's so rare. Of course, that's part of my shtick, actually, is that if I don't know what's going to happen next, you win. 
I don't even care if the film is quite ordinary. If I can't work out how it's going to play out, yes. you win. Absolutely. Even if it's an ordinary film. Because, like, you know, your you standard know. blockbuster, you know exactly yeah. what Act 3 is going to look like. Absolutely. And that's so boring. And then it's just, you're just biding time. You're just, you know. Even that film, what's that, uh, what's his name, Ben Affleck film. Uh, what was the one with the heist in it? You know, The with Town? The, the Town. Yeah. I, I couldn't work out how it was going to play out. And I thought, really? well, this is a, quite an ordinary film, but I still couldn't work out. And I thought, you well, win. I could have you win, Ben. <laughs> well, just watch Michael Mann's Heat for uh, where mm. he took all his ideas from. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get on to that. This is, uh, this is actually a strange bit of music. Yeah. It's uh, let's look at, uh, Nick Perito. Is that right? Hmm. Anyway, it was a it was a it was a single, wasn't it? It was like a it was a hit record, uh, but it was originally written for um, the Alamo. Dimitri Tonkin wrote oh, it right. as a song. It actually has words to it, uh, but I think this is the opening sequence. Is this the sequence at the beginning? No. Ah. When it, let's oh, play it. And find let's out. play it. Here we go. of summer from Inglorious Bastards sort of in 2012 uh, Quentin Tarantino's war film really because um, he doesn't really use does he he doesn't uh, he, doesn't he doesn't have co- scores written yeah he doesn't commission original scores no he, he just uses everyone else's but he sort of I mean I think the way he uses music is the way he makes his films That he, he it's a patchwork it's like he's like a hip hop artist in the sense it's all samples mm. and uh, you know some people don't like that I quite like it because it's you know, if you know anything about film history, it's fun identifying it and kind of going, oh, it's that, you know. Yeah, which um, is why I found uh, about Strange About Django, because a lot of what he was referencing was some rather iffy 1970s cinema, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it's that sort of ex- uh, exploitation. Yeah, and... drum and uh, Mandingo and things like yeah, that. I mean, yeah, really yeah. odd films, which took a lot of money in their day. Yeah, yeah. But they're not films you'd be particularly comfortable about screening now, are they? No, but that's his whole thing, isn't it, is resurrecting the forgotten crass gems of the past is is his motif if you will you yes. know i mean he's done it with kill bill and all those films it's like bringing back things that he's loved but are not necessarily well loved 
Mm. I remember them all because they were part of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up with the posters. I'd go in and right. the posters were there and they were all very... And, you know, the old man would talk about how well this had done and how well that had done. So that, I, that's so my memory. So you had first-hand experience with these, Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's kind of, I, I mean, it was quite... Uh, See, for know. me, these are sort of things that I might have caught, like, on t- late night on TV mm. rather than in a cinema. Yeah, I saw most of these things in the cinema. Because right. uh, I was lucky... Well, lucky. I'm using inverted commas <laughs> yeah. here. In that... Um, you know, I, they didn't worry too. He didn't worry too much about you know ex certificate stuff particularly. Right. You know, so because I think Mandingo was an ex, wasn't it? Right. And, uh, <laughs> so it was a it was a strange was a childhood to be sure. Then. Yes, it was. Right, we're going to play some uh, all about my mother. Cool. I'm going to play that uh, bit of that now. I've got a couple of minutes before I have to do another break, and then we'll uh, talk about that. we go that's part of alberto Iglesias's score for uh pedro almodovar almodovar almodovar's um all about my mother all about my mother todo si oh my spanish is uh, not so good todo sobre mi madre ah, there we are it's kind of considered it's one of his best isn't it that i one? would say in my opinion it's definitely his best it's his most mature work and it's uh it's a lot of fun too but it's really it's heavy hitting and I, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's extraordinary. It's my, incredible for them, yeah. My particular favourite is uh, Abla Cornella, the yeah, talk to her. Talk to her. That, that is good, too. That, uh, Same era, I think. It's like a couple of years away from it, and it's... Uh, he was clearly like a proper grown-up filmmaker, but it wasn't just all parties, what it was at the beginning. No, and I think you could... Cause, uh, the risk, again, of sounding like an arse, to have some... <laughs> Go to, on. <laughs> but to have some uh, knowledge of how 
Spain was at the time mm. these films were made actually inf- really does inform oh, the films. The, the, uh, and, you know, particularly that kind of uh, off-the-leash yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. in the 80s after Franco. Well, they they Franco used to call and, it the La Movida because mm. everything was moving and everybody was taking their clothes off and after 40 years of uh, uh, harsh dictatorship. Fascist rule, yeah. And, of course, it's as he's grown. And I think that's what happened with... Um, the the last one. Skin I live in. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. The uh, what the airline one. Oh, the um, uh, fly away. Whatever with me. it's called. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? Someone somewhere is shouting at yeah, the yeah at, at the, the radio, radio going, going yeah that one. But the the the, the satirical element of that yeah, was yeah. was so strong. I mean, presumably the Spaniards were rolling around in the aisles laughing. It was. It was very much lost in translation. Yes. I thought because I saw it and laughed the whole way through. Mm. And other English speaking people said, "What was what was that all about?" Right. And so. Yeah, context is everything. Mm. Okay, we've got to have a break, and then when we come back uh, from our Modavar to Carpenter. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Kevin Markwick Show, and my guest, John Baronichier. I got it right? Yes! <laughs> I just gave you a thumbs up. He for, did. I should have just the, done that, shouldn't I? For the now-webcam audience. Uh, 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 big man in the picture house chain. Are we rivals? Well, sort of. We're not a chain, we're a group of cinemas. Oh, a group of cinemas. Oh, yeah, it mustn't use the word chain. <laughs> we're not Tesco. <laughs> that there's anything wrong the, with the, that. The UK's premier... What was Quality it? What was cinema. Quality cinema. Provider. Yeah. Yes. You nicked my name. <laughs> <laughs> no, because actually, I have constant arguments with people, because what they tend to do is list me as picture house, one word. Right. Well, no, I'm not. I'm the space picture space house. Right. I get quite it's touchy about that. It's a house of pictures. It's yeah, not I a get, picture house. I, yeah, I, I get quite touchy about that one. But <laughs> it's all going well, yes? Yeah, yeah. Things, uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're opening new cinemas and we're... Um we're in the yeah in the process of growing a bit and uh, it's fun. Uh, mm. we're, yeah, and the one in Brighton's doing right. The comedian one, it's good. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's doing its first year, doing very well. People have taken uh, taken it into their hearts, so to speak. And uh, yeah, it's super busy. Um, and the, of course, Duke of York's still going over there. And uh, mm. no, it's lovely. Great. I mean, what a sight, though. What a sight! Right smack bang in the middle. of Oh, all it's that. incredible. You stand there just on a weekend, and, yeah. and you can't see the no. street. There's so many people. <laughs> Uh, you couldn't pick a better place for footfall-wise to put no, no, a cinema. So. No, 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 we're happy about that. It's lovely. It is lovely. Right, we're going to move on now to John Carpenter, They Live. They Why do. did we pick this one? Well, I mean, this, for me, it's 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 my favourite Carpenter film. It, it came at a time when he was sort of out of the glorious days of, of Halloween and The Thing. And he, Well, actually, you know that I just said the word The Thing. Yes. I realised that actually that's a better film. Actually, that it is said, a better film. Yeah. That said, this is an unheralded masterpiece in a way. I think it's a really powerful political message wrapped up as a really cheesy B-movie. Yeah, because um, just to fill people in, basically what's been happening is the alien invasion has already happened, isn't yes. it? Yes. And the only way you can see it, uh, that you can find out about it is if you wear these glasses. Like I mean, the whole thing's a metaphor for, like, political awakening and and the working man. And it's, yeah. a, you know, made in Reagan's America and... Uh, and, uh, you know, criticizing consumerism and all those shirts that you see everywhere that say obey. It all comes from this movie. It's, oh, it does. Yeah. You put the glasses on and, yeah. the, and the, the billboard. I'll say obey, obey consume, consume, reproduce. And, yeah. and, and, and then uh, the, the, like, there's a, the great bit where they're reading the news and they're all like, uh, you can see that they're yeah, the yeah. aliens. And all this, yeah. The so news. normal people that appear normal are, that are actually aliens appear as kind of. You can, you can only see, through see their skin with and, the glasses. And um, 
I think it's, I mean, I, as you know, Carpenter does all the music in his films. He does, yeah. And it's some of it's just, obviously, Halloween is the probably the best known one. Mm-hmm. But I, I quite like this little piece of music Okay, here well. we go. This is They Live. They live. They do. They do. <laughs> what was the quote? I've, I'm here to do two things. <laughs> Chew gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of chewing gum. <laughs> what, a, what a fine piece of... Tom Stoppard could not have written a finer line, I'm telling you, it's, it's the lexicon <laughs> of B-movie language. It's fantastic. B-movies, yeah. Maybe because uh, you're, you're originally from New York. Is that what it is? How come on? Because we, we clearly there's some Spanish going on here and something from New York. Yeah, Explain yeah. So, to me. well, I'm not. I mean, I'm not from New York. My my mother is from New York. Okay. But born born and bred a New Yorker, uh, and my dad's from the Basque region of Spain, or the Basque country, and um, and I was actually born in Italy. So, oh my it's a tricky God. one. But I have lived. I lived in New York for a few years. And, There's got to uh, be a joke there somewhere, isn't there? And, uh, you know, I know a rabbi, a priest. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's all. It's great, though, isn't it? It's like a. That's all right. Yeah, you know, I just. It's just every time someone asks me where you're from, it's. Uh, you go, oh. So I just say, you know, shorthand is American. American. Because so, yeah, that's what it American. sounds like. It sounds about right. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to get into Michael Mann. 
great. Which you have to tell us all about now, because we're going to start with Thief. Okay. Why are we starting with that one? Well, it's his first uh, theatrical film that he made. He made Before that, he made a TV movie, but this is the first one, uh, his first film, really. And, and right from the bat, he, music is an important part of all his films, and electronic music as well. And so Tangerine Dream, he made uh, two films, three, um, well, three if you count Manhunter, but really uh, Thief and The Keep were pure Tangerine Dream scores composed specifically for them. Um, and I think they're fantastic. I mean, the, the, um, a recent film like Drive yes. borrows so heavily from Thief, uh, you know, in, 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 in look and feel and, and also the sort of soundtrack. But well, it was a very deliberate attempt, wasn't it, that film, to, even the credit titles. Yes, the neon the, the, the titles. Neon, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's quite important. I think it is very 80s in a way, but... But I think it really holds up, and um, I think man, every, I mean, pretty much everything he does is, is great. So, but he's American cinema, isn't he? I mean, he's it's very much Americana. American cinema. He taps yeah. into all this, you know, the, the the man doing his job and the last job, and the, it's quite romantic and it's quite. Um, but I think his technique isn't. His technique isn't like John, uh, John Ford, for example. It's more European influence. So. A lot of interesting, uh, you know, work with slow motion. Yeah, he allows cameras. his film to time, doesn't he? I mean, the one thing Michael Mann films are mostly is long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Thief's like Thief's like a hundred minutes. That's, that's is not it? bad. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was his. Hang on, let's have a look. So that was his first film. Yeah. I was trying to think who made To Live and Die in L.A. That wasn't him then. No, that was Fridkin. William oh, Fridkin. I always get them those mixed up. It feels like it should be a Michael Mann film. Yeah, well, it's it's it's. I think it's very influenced by that sort of style because more the most influential thing Mann's ever done is really Miami Vice the TV show, mm. which brought cinema to the small screen in a way because it was the first TV show that kind of for its time felt like a movie. It was very, uh, you know, it was more violent. Uh, it was more, and I'm putting this in quotes, realistic. Uh, obviously, we look back at it now and all we see are white suits. But, white suits and shoulder pads. Yes. <laughs> but apart from that, I mean, the way it was put on, and also, you know, obviously the Phil Collins song was quite important. And so on, but the use of music and cinematography for TV was quite revolutionary compared to things like Starsky and Hutch and mm. so on. Yeah, which were those overlit... Yeah, that kind, kind of, of real uh, cardboard cut uh, yeah. sets. Mm. You know, this was re use of real locations. And, yes. Um, so that was very influential on all cop movies from the 80s onward. Things like Beverly Hills Cops, whether it was comedy or straight up 48 Hours. Mm. All those movies that, and obviously To Live and Die in L.A., mm. which also shares with Man the uh, William Peterson starring role. I think that's what confuses that's what me. Confuse so Manhunter, <laughs> obviously, is a Peterson <laughs> Uh, starring yeah starring. okay well let's hear a bit of tangerine because tangerine Dr freak can use tangerine dream in uh his remake of wages of fear as well didn't he so it all starts to yes uh which i think was called sorcerer for That's some right. bizarre reason have you seen it it's fantastic it is amazing yeah, i still prefer the clouseau one but i think it's no no, no yeah. fair enough but there's uh there's a new blu-ray they've remastered it. it it looks great oh okay we'll have a look at it. okay here's a we can't play all of this because it kind of goes on a bit but this is <laughs> <laughs> this is from the thief soundtrack
It's just getting interesting now. <laughs> it's a mood piece, isn't it? It is, isn't it? I mean, the, the Tangerine Dream that sticks in my mind is the uh, that uh, again that was a kind of mannish sort of scene, wasn't it? In um, Risky Business. Yes. On the train. That did have mannish overtones. Absolutely, yeah, and that's a great score as well. And that's a great movie, actually. That's a, it is a good movie. It's a rare one-off, because that guy really didn't do anything else ever, that director. Did he not? No, he directed one more film, which was a disaster, critically and commercially. But I think Risky Business is a really chunky, good piece of 80s filmmaking. Yeah, and it made a star, really, of Tom Cruise, didn't it? I always uh, the, the line that sticks out to me is, which one of you guys is the U-boat commander? Which is the one... <laughs> I don't know why that sticks in my because they, they they submerge the Porsche, don't they? Anyway, we digress. So, um, Michael Mann, Thief, which uh, I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember all of it. It's a long time since I've you seen to, it. James Carnes did his kind of mumbly mumbly thing, didn't he? It, it's an incredible performance. He does a thing where every line he says, everything he says, he he has perfect diction of it. So he doesn't, he never hesitates. Because he's a guy who spent all this time in prison. He has to make the most of his time and he's out. Right. So he never speaks unless he actually has something to say. And he says it really clearly and really precisely. Okay. I should revisit it. it. I should revisit it. It's a long time since I've seen it. So we're going to move on to, is this considered uh, man's masterpiece, Heat? I think most people would consider it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's certainly... Um, you know, it's it's the big it's the big one, isn't it? It's big epic. Well, and it big. was also the, the, the we've got the two guys together yeah, for the exactly. first time. De Niro and Pacino, and yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, this I think I think you're going to play uh, movies mm, yeah. uh, moving over the water. I mean, this is the song that finishes the film, and I think it's the, the, the it's the apotheosis of it. Really, it's the John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart scene in a sense, because um, at that point. Pacino said, spoiler again. No, no, it doesn't matter. Seriously. Pacino kills De Niro. Yes. But as he dies, holds his hand, and they make a really theatrical pose, which is completely unrealistic. And then the song comes on. Right. And I think it's quite moving. It's kind of yin and yang, though. They're kind of yeah. two, two sides of the same. It's a, it's a fairly old. It's a very old. Thing. Old, yeah. Th- I mean, it's old like, thing, you know, it? uh, Melville did it in. Um, in his uh, samurai movie, and then mm. I mean, obviously, all the westerns, film noirs, and, and that uh, line, it's in Moby Dick, for Christ's yeah, yeah, sake. And you that, know, that, that line that's always in a lot of these films. You know, you, know, you and I are not so different. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I bet you could make. But one they of never these, actually yeah. use that line. I think no. it's more like it's unsaid, and I think it's it's one of the better ones that uses that conceit uh, because they never really say you and I are alike. Mm. They, it's kind of implied. So there's that diner scene where they both talk. Which I think is the only real scene they do together, isn't it, yeah, in the yeah. picture? I'm pretty sure it is. I remember being slightly disappointed that the the wife character, for instance, was treated not particularly well in that. It was she's, she mm. had the same dialogue all wives of cops yeah, have. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're never home, you're coming, is it, what kind of life is this? And I thought, oh, come on, you can do better than that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, the criticism is sometimes of uh, man films is that he doesn't, um, the women characters are sometimes undeveloped. Uh, but he's so narrow-minded in his focus of to what the the drive of the film is mm. that is he, he that makes no apologies. It's about these men who are really good at their jobs, and often that job is a crime. But it could be you know yeah, a journalist it's a very or a boxer. Kind of ma- a man, it's a manly f- man. It's a manly man, man world. <laughs> and of course, the the shootout sequence is the one that it's kind incredible. of sticks in your mind, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's quite amazing because it's urban combat that is 
more realistic. You know, all all those guys will have used real weapons. You know, his, his uh, attention to detail is quite well known, and and it goes on for a realistic amount of time. People run out of bullets. Uh, you know, civilians do get hurt. It's not heroic in a in a in a sort of you know like mm. a Tom Cruise action movie, maybe like a Mission Impossible. Yeah, it's more grounded. Mm. And stakes are really high, and uh, and it's quite tense, and I think it's incredible. Yeah, and it's and even Val Kilmer's good in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's Moby.
Mogwai. Auto Rock, that's called. Oh, are you like, you've been mucking, he's been trying to Instagram himself. <laughs> I was Instagramming the mic, oh. not myself. And that's from uh, Miami Vice. That's the one, yeah. Was that not a totally pointless film in the end? I don't think It didn't think take so. money, did it? It didn't take money. No. It was a disaster commercially and critically. Mm. Although it's, 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 it's one of those things, it's like Eyes Wide Shut, uh, when it came out very poorly regarded it's building up i run into so many miami vicers really it's like so, that's, it's just, that's what we call ourselves of, now do you have a special secret signal so that you know yeah it's a, you it's a white uh, blazer yeah. we just you roll we, we, your sleeves we'll up roll our your, sleeves your up jackets. and wear a mullet yeah <laughs> no i think this is an amazing film and i think you should look at it again i um, will it's a it's a watershed in, in terms of editing digital cinematography sound editing i think it's got a really it's got a really strong collection of action scenes in it. It's really, it's 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 sort of the man quintessential plot boiled down to its essentials. But why did he feel the need to make that picture? I mean, he'd made the TV show. Yeah, I think that was probably. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know the the conversations, but I imagine the the studio said, "Look, we have a successful property. Do you want to do it?" And because he owns the property, he said, oh, okay. okay, I'll do it. So I guess if he didn't do it, someone, someone else would have yeah, done it. Yeah, I think someone, you know, a Michael Bay, for example, would have ah. done it. Uh, you know, essentially, because that's what Bad Boys is. Bad Boys is essentially Miami Vice cranked up to 11. So he took it, but rather than do what people expected him to do, which is a loud, colorful film, okay. he did a really dark, mumbly one, um, which I think kind of put people off. But... I think it's fantastic. It's for me. It's one of the best films of that of that decade. Um, well, it was made in two thousand six. Yeah. Wow. I had it I, in my head. It's older than that. <laughs> Isn't it funny? It's you know. timeless. Kevin. Well, it's no. Timeless. I just think it's kind of uh, okay. So we're going to move on to Collateral now. Two thousand and four. Cool. Oh, yeah. I've got them backwards. No, that's okay. Oh, how did that happen? See, that's what happened. When I was doing the list out, I imagined Miami Vice was older than Collateral, which is Well, not. you're building them up in sort of box office figures, so yeah, Collateral okay. is the biggest one he's ever done. And I, actually, I have to say, in terms of pure... Entertainment. Entertainment. It's a good one, isn't it? Minute for minute. Yeah. There's no longueurs <laughs> in that one, is there? It's kind of efficient. It's unusually efficient for a Michael well, Mann it's picture. a weird movie in that it, it unusually, essentially... It's the third act of another film stretched out to feature length. Because if you think about it, it's at the end. It's kind of like he goes on this killing spree. You know, there's a whole movie to, to build up to the point where Tom Cruise walks into that cab. Mm. And uh, and so it's more precise in a sense. It takes place not in real time, but almost in real time. It feels like real time when yeah. you're watching it. And I always, I like movies that take place, not a, if not in real time, at least close to it, like over a single day yes. or a single night. There's something quite interesting about that. And the geography somewhere. of it is very interesting yes. as well, isn't it? It's got great music. It's, it's you know digital cinematography again. Well, that's what I was going to say because it was also for quite groundbreaking with the digital uh, photography, particularly given that pretty much all of it takes place at night. Yeah, it has exactly. a kind of sodium. That's how I remember it. I remember it having a kind of yellowy sodium look to it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the key thing about digital cinematography that it allows uh, filmmakers to do is it's that depth of field at night when you normally don't have it. So mm. if you were to film with conventional 35mm, you would have to light everything that you want in focus as far as the eye can see. With this, he can shoot a cloud that's 10 miles away. If there's a lightning in it, mm. the camera will capture it. So it completely changes the geography of what what we normally assume you can see in a film yes. and how you can shoot it. 
So very lots of natural light, lots of so when when the 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 guns go off in collateral, that's the light produced by the gun. That's not an effect. Right. So it kind of, I think it really grounds it. It makes it feel much more real. Um, and, and Tom it, Cruise is great in it. He is great, and it's probably quite a risk casting an actor like that in a film, which is kind of it's both claustrophobic and expansive at the same time, isn't it? It has a kind of a you know you feel the size of the city, yet at the same time it all takes place mostly within inside the, that cab. inside the small cab. Yeah, I think it's a great two-hander. It's sort of an mm. old-fashioned feel to it. But he could have easily swamped that film with one of his wise guy performances, couldn't he? But he didn't. No, absolutely. And but he, that's the director, I guess. He could, absolutely. He, he, he reigned. There's it in. a great. I mean, this is really going down nerdville. But if you watch the the Blu-ray of it. <laughs> The uh, the training that Tom Cruise went through to get to that role, even though he's known as an action star, is unlike anything he'd ever had to do before that, in the sense that he had to go out there and, you know, become essentially that character because Michael Mann makes his actors become that character realistically. So it's about, you know, building that curriculum up until the point where he's not acting anymore. He is that guy. So he's like an American Mike Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Mann. <laughs> Michael Mann and uh, Mike Lee. You know, we're not so different, you and I. <laughs> Sitting across the diner. <laughs> okay, this is uh, Hands of Time from Collateral.
Groove Armada, uh, Hands of Time, from Michael Mann's 2004 film Collateral. Which was good. Unlike Miami Vice. <laughs> so that kind of brings us, brings us to the end of our little Michael and Manny bit. Uh, you're listening to the Kevin Markwick Show on Uckfield FM with John Baronachia and uh, me. <laughs> I was looking to see if there was anyone else in the room. No, that's pretty no, much it. No, that's we're, pretty. We're out here on the farm. So now we're going to go. We're going to go to so the the greatest films of all time. Yeah, which is always an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, because it's a stupid question, really, isn't it? Oh, because, it, because well, all these choices are completely personal, isn't it? There's no objective. <sighs> well, is there? An I don't objective? think there is objectiveness. No, I mean there. I think there's some there's some basic objective things, but when it comes to like, because obviously. Um, Vertigo just beat Citizen Kane for the first time to Sight and Sound Paul, right? It did. Right, which which I, I disagree with. I think I don't think I don't that understand. Much of, I don't think that much of Vertigo. Well, we went uh, my daughter and I uh, revisited it on Doove Day, and um, her appraisal. She's like twenty five. Her appraisal of it was Vertigo per Vertigo, more like. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that was it, a one one word, one sentence review of yeah, yeah. Hitchcock's classic. But I think it's like it's so less dynamic than some other Hitchcock films that are, you know, like Rear Window, which is the perfect Hitchcock, or Notorious, or I mean, there's so many Psycho. I mean, there's so many great uh, Hitchcock films that are that just do the Hitchcock job, that engine that keeps going. But the suspension of disbelief in Vertigo is stretched pretty much oh to breaking God. point. Yeah, isn't you it? wouldn't recognize, you know, the re- just the yeah. recognition factor there alone. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but we're not no. talking about Vertigo. We're no. talking about the film it replaced, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yeah. Which is, was for how many years? I don't know, 40, 40 years or something? 40-something years, yeah. Considered the greatest film ever made. And it's one of those films, I think, that you can, you can, it's very easy for you to go, yeah, yeah, Citizen Kane. Then you watch it again and you go, ooh. ooh. It's entertaining. It's a funny movie. It's really good. It's a short. does the job. does loads of interesting bits. You look at it and... And it still surprises you. Like a lot of these films, you watch them and you all you recognize are the references to it in pop culture. But with Kane, there's so there is lots of that. But there's also you know it's like Rosebud, etc. Mm-hmm. But there's so many bits that are like really witty, like in a Noel Coward esque way, and smart, and you know mm. Leland typing away his review, and then he comes in and finishes the review. It's all this spite and betrayal. Yeah. And, and that's an amazing shot, bit. isn't it? Oh. Where he's because Leland's yeah. right at the back of the frame. And, uh, you know, that because uh, Ozu is always kind of um, uh, credited with that idea. But I think Wells may have come up with it first. I think, oh, absolutely. I mean, he was digging, you know, he dug uh, when the, the camera couldn't go low enough. He actually literally dug into the set, mm. into the dirt and put the camera beneath the floor so he could get those angles. And a lot of that was presumably due to the fact that he wasn't a filmmaker. Not really. I mean, he, he was exactly. a, an actor and, a you know, sort of famous radio star. All round it, but yeah. he'd not made movies, no. so he didn't know the, what the rules were. Exactly, and in those days, I mean, there were lots of rules in Hollywood about what you could and couldn't do, and it wasn't like the guys in the 60s and 70s who changed everything inspired by Wells and said, oh, you know, let's try some other stuff. These were, you know, 1941, you had to follow the the, it, the, the, the rules. Yeah, and, and of course... Um, the other interesting thing about it was that they they, they they he let that one they let that one slip through the net and of course they weren't gonna that wasn't gonna happen a second time. No. With uh um Ambersons. Ambersons. Yeah, yeah. Well Ambersons. that's the holy grail, isn't it, to find that footage. To find the cut of the magnificent Ambersons. They said that someone said they were really close to it. They found a box in Argentina where they thought they'd found it, but no. <laughs> 
they That's didn't. Like the, it is uh, literally, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the it Lost, would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. For film. So I'm just going to play this bit, then cool. we're going to talk about Wells a bit more. This is the, uh, everyone who loves Citizen Kane will recognise this. It's uh, News on the March. <laughs> Citizen Kane 19 what was it 14 41. 41 that's amazing 1941 we went up to uh, last year on my birthday my mate and I we went up to um, Hearst Castle really yeah that's what, in amazing California? Yeah, yeah that's amazing which of course is what the story is yeah, supposed yeah, to be yeah. Saint Simeon yeah is well yeah called? it's out in I don't know yeah, up, Northern up, California the, up the PCH yeah, it's yeah. kind of ooh misses up the PCH <laughs> only an Englishman would say that wouldn't he <laughs> Do you like it up the PCH? Um, and you can see, I mean, the minute you see it, you can see exactly what, what Wells was doing. Of, yeah. Well, because he was invited, he was a friend. He used to be invited up there for parties because he mm. knew Marion Davies. That whole crew, Charlie Chaplin, Marion Davies, that was the Hollywood elite of that time. You know, they were the, the kings of Hollywood. And Wells was a, you know, a raconteur, a guy who held court. Yes. So he went up there and he used all that stuff. And Hammer Mankiewicz as well. Old, you know, old money family. And to make a full-on satire Incredible. using a Hollywood studio, Incredible. I mean, that's a lot of chutzpah, really, isn't it? It's, a, it's like if someone made a Murdoch, a movie about Murdoch right now who'd been on the inside and seen everything that went on. At, at, but a full-scale, yeah. big-budget... Exactly. Because it was yeah. RKO. And put I mean, George Clooney in the part and yeah. do the whole thing. Yeah, know? yeah, it was an RKO picture. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, yeah. In fact, there's a great uh, TV movie called, I think it's called RKO, RKO 185 or whatever it's called. Yeah, whatever. With, uh, what's his name? Uh, John Malkovich and, and Liev Schreiber. Yeah. 
which is really interesting. I'm not sure if it's a good film, but... As I don't a think it's very it's accurate gonna... because it takes the point of view right. of Colin Kale, which I disagree with. So. Oh, okay. Hey, we could, I could hey, literally do an hour we'd on go that. here all night. Let's <laughs> do an ad break. You're listening to Uckfield FM, Kevin Markwick, John Baron Nechea, sitting here talking... Is it nonsense? No. <laughs> No, this is. We're the, talking about movies, the stuff dreams are made of, which is our most favouritest thing because we're both exhibitors, you see. That's which is the not thing. the same as exhibitionists. No, no. Well, exhibitors, there's not. I mean, there's not that many of us out there, is there? Not really. No, I think it's a it's a rare it's it's a thing that most people don't even know is a word or exists. Do you think so? I think so. I'm I do exhi- encounter puzzlement when I tell <laughs> people that. This is why I tell people I work for cinemas, not in this, not not making them. Mm. But not, not making in the films. movie business, but an exhibitor. It's a pretty groovy thing to be, though. Isn't I think it? it's great. You know, I don't know. I think maybe this says too much about me, but it's the safest and nicest place in the world to be, isn't it? Sitting in, in a in movie theater. Yeah, just sitting in there. It is my favorite place. In I the can world. sit there all day from yeah. beginning to the well, end. Well, I day. do. All, when we go on festivals, yeah. you know what it's, it's like. Yeah, it's like just, from eight in the morning to midnight, you're there. And I can't think of anything better other than getting drunk and having dinner. <laughs> Which you can do at the same time. <laughs> Which you can. Right, so we're going to stay with uh, Awesome Wells for a bit. Well, for one more. Uh, the Extraordinary Touch of Evil. Yeah. Which was, a, was it a bit of a rehabilitation for Wells? That well, one? It was another shot. So he got uh, a shot to direct. Charlton Heston was attached to Star, and he asked for Wells to direct. Because Touch of uh, 1958, so we've gone from 41 to 58, mm. because so he fell out of favour. he exile, so he'd gone into Europe, he'd made a couple of Shakespeare films, Othello, <laughs> Macbeth, great films, but made no money on them, you know, really, really difficult time for him. So he came back, Charlton, he was going to just do the bit part in the in the movie, and, and Charlton Heston said, why doesn't he direct it as well, he's great. So he directed it, and it was brilliant, but of course, uh, fell foul of the studio system, and... Uh, Mm. They took it away from him, changed mm. the score, recut it, uh, released it on a on a sort of on a double bill with with another sort of terrible B movie, and um, and only the French got it. <laughs> but why did this happen consistently to Wells? It's an interesting thing. Is it? I mean, mm. it's almost like he he became a parody of himself in that regard, didn't he? He just couldn't. I don't know. Is it because he wouldn't let it go? Or were his ideas so avant-garde or different? I think that- they were. I think it, it's hard to imagine what it's like making Citizen Kane in 1941. As a quite a fresh-faced, youngish bloke. Yeah, so I think what he did is he, he essentially pissed off all the people in power. And, um, and that, that set the tone uh, from then onwards. I mean, I think far more difficult people worked for decades. I mean, John Huston was a maniac. And he made... But he knew how to play the game, exactly. didn't he, Houston? Yeah. That was the thing. But I guess, I, yeah, it's just a different personality, isn't it? I mean, Orson was was bigger than life. He didn't want to make films for hire. He wanted to make his films. And uh, But, he's, but he's, you know, he was a remarkable actor as well. Mm. I mean, if you think... I mean, people tend to forget... It's the third the, man. Well, but the Wells legend is, you know, all about these half-made films yeah. or, or kind of slightly compromised films that he made. But, you know, he was a dashing leading man in Jane mm. Eyre. And uh, there was... What's the one where he, The Stranger in Town? Is it Stranger in Town? The, the Stranger. stranger. Well, he directed that one. That was that a was great probably, movie. Yeah, it's great. But yeah. it's, it's actually his only real for hire film he ever made because that it? one was straight up it was actually a bit of a hit uh Edward G. Robinson as the Nazi yeah no for, Edward G. Uh, Robinson uh, as the uh, cop investigator yeah, yeah no absolutely. and Wells as the Nazi Wells was the Nazi yes because of course that was the thing that, that great was scene the, with the tower the, the, the clock, clock tower. tower yeah yeah 
I thought old chimes film. at midnight again. You know yeah, that kind yeah. of. Uh, and the I other- think there's some good films out there that he actually like. If you watch F for Fake, which is one that he managed to finish, and is, I mean, it's about forty years ahead of, you know, something like the Banksy movie, wishes yes. it could do. <laughs> and this film made, did it forty years ahead, before. It was a fine film. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, there's you know chimes at midnight exists in some form. Uh, it's not the film he wanted he, that he wanted that he saw at the end, but there's 90% of a, of a masterpiece in there. There's a lot, you know, Touch of Evil now with the recut. It's version. considered a masterpiece. Mm. And the, the, the one actually that always sticks in my mind is the one he made with uh, his then wife. Um, Lady from Shanghai. Lady yeah, from Rita Shanghai. Hayworth. That was That's incredible. And that amazing sequence in the Hall of oh. Mirrors at the end. It's just, I mean, that must have been a nightmare to shoot, I should think. But, uh, I mean, being married to Rita Hayworth alone, <laughs> come on. <laughs> You, you, yeah, that's it. I get. I, I, I've won at life. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, all, all the all, all the glitters is not gold. No, but, I do know. I do know. Well, she, I don't know that. But no. this, that's the story. Isn't you it? keep I mean, going was, for the gold. She was you. difficult. She was difficult, wasn't she? I think. But, um, but she suffered from uh, dementia in the end, didn't she? Yeah, no, she was a troubled girl. I mean, the the uh, that was a troubled relationship. I mean, he was, you know, he mm. was a, a ladies' man to say the least, as well. So you know, it's. Uh, I love the story that used to drive around an ambulance. Yeah, to get from um, radio set to yeah. from CBS to York. NBC. Because it was uh, the quickest and easiest yeah, way yeah. to do it. But this, we're going to play the main title from Touch of Evil, which, if you are a film nerd, you will know that is probably considered one of the greatest setups in cinema history, where you've got this amazing tracking shot where they, they switch from Mexico back into the US and following uh, the car and uh, Charlton Heston. Yeah. And that's slightly odd odd makeup that John Heston wears in that film. I'm not sure it's fully successful, is it? But um, yeah. but that shot, I mean, if you've ever, if anybody who's ever worked in production watches that and says, that must have taken so long because yeah. everything has to work on one take. Absolutely. And, and it there's worked, hundreds of people moving around there. And it's definitely, I mean, the biggest homage to it, I suppose, is in Robert Altman's, um, uh, you know, the one about the, the writer. Ah! Yeah, the player. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yes. Is, that's almost a direct yeah. homage. And they I mean, even talk about it. It's very meta because they talk about it. Yeah, it? yeah it's yeah, kind yeah. of all that rest of it. Okay, so this is the music from Touch of Evil, which was written by somebody really famous. I should know that. Uh, Mancini, Henry, Henry Mancini. Oh, Henry Mancini. Oh, Man- Mancini. Or Mancini, you So, mean. well, is it Mancini, Mancini? Let's call I think in Italian you call him Mancini, but he probably said Mancini because he oh, wanted to get around. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's really slinky, isn't it? Yeah, smooth. Man, I mean, Mancini, Mancini. He's um, Pink Panther. Really, was his most. That's famous, really his biggest thing. And then also um, Moon River. Breakfast, yeah, breakfast, breakfast at Tiffany's. But that's from Touch of Evil, Orson Welles' film. So if you don't, you know, you need, you need these aren't films that uh, they show on television like they should. You know, when I was growing up, that's yeah. how I learned about a lot of exactly. This stuff. Exactly, film education came from like mm. old v- scratched VHS tapes and late oh. night screenings of late night screenings. Yeah, you know, Movie Drome on BBC Two with Alex Cox used to show a lot of odd stuff. But also Sunday afternoon, yeah. when I was a kid, the BBC would show a melodrama of some description. Right. So I understood all about you know how Warner Brothers would have you know Mildred Pierce and yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of kitchen M- sink MGM stuff. versus Fox, yeah, all of all that those. stuff. Yeah. That's that's how I saw those pictures, right. and I, I think it's a real shame we don't see those on television anymore. No, that's true. It's but true. I guess the kid, they wouldn't watch it, would they? I mean, because the other thing is that was the only thing that was on. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we should do is shut down all the cable shut down channels, all other all channels, in, yeah. and show uh, make everyone uh, Waterloo watch it. Bridge, like in the Postman, where they make everyone watch the Sound of Music on a loop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna I'm gonna play this straight off, and then if you're if you're a film nut and love movies like we do, you'll you'll recognise this straight away. She called. Uh, hang on, I'm going to look at my list of glory here. Uh, Gassenhauer. Yeah. Now, I think many people will recognize. It's funny. It's kind of like a generational thing. Lots of people will recognize this music from a more recent film called True Romance. Well, you say recent. Uh, yeah, and it's 20 <laughs> years old. But it's actually from uh, Badlands, which is you know, and, and then the two sort of lovers on the run from from mm. Jerome's is obviously an homage to that, I would say. But it's Terence Malick's uh, film Badlands with uh, Sissy Spacek and 
uh, Martin Sheen. That's right. Which was, uh, in many ways, a forerunner to a lot of films. Uh, even Natural Born Killers owes it some kind of... Uh, oh, so well, it's yeah. the same screenwriter. In a sense, you know, uh, True Romance and MBK yes. are both Tarantino's Right. Script. Oh, OK, yes, of course. So there you go. So he's got that theme, I think, of the, mm. the, the you know, lovers on the run... Um, going through it, but um, but there's no rationale to the story in the end, is there? I mean, they're just she's she's uh, sort of besotted with him because he shows her a way out from this. Yeah, she's a simple girl. He looks a bit like James Dean, as she says. Mm. And um, I mean, you know, going back to Bruce Springsteen, he made an album called Nebraska, which is inspired by the Badlands by the movie. Oh, okay. And one of the lines in one of those songs is is where he says. Um, where, he, where the guy explains himself why he killed all those people. He says, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. And it doesn't really, it's not assigning responsibility. There's no sociological explanation for it. It's just sometimes the banality of it is there. And that's, you know, and this guy's an empty headed. He's an idiot. For whatever. Isn't he? Is he an idiot? I think he is. I think he he's is vain. A, he's vain. He's very vain. He, and, um, and he has no compassion. And, I mean, he's a sociopath. You know, technically, technically speaking, he's a sociopath. He has no empathy for anyone. Um, but I mean, aside from being very beautiful in places, yeah. like we were just saying while that was playing, that particular piece of music plays several times in the picture. Yeah. But there's a point at which she burns the house down. Yeah. Uh, it's her or him. I can't remember. They, they, they do it they together. Together yeah. with her father inside. Yeah. And this this kind of rather beautiful music, which is actually written for children, it was yeah. a it was a it was a children's thing, uh, plays over this uh, scene. So this kind of counterpoint, and his films have always had that uh, be- beautiful kind of uh, thing about them. And it was a he he subsequently went and made uh, Days of Heaven, yeah. which is a, uh, I'm not sure it's an amazing film. It's amazing to look at. Well, you know that. I mean, that, yeah, it's probably. I remember uh, in film school someone referring to Days of Heaven as the the most beautiful uh, film shot in color in film history, because yeah. you know it obviously utilizes. It's all magic hour, light, isn't magic it? And all hour. that kind of stuff. It had two yeah. different cinematographers: mm. Nestor Almendros and then Haskell Wexler. Yeah. It, it it looks like nothing you've ever seen. Mm, beautiful, ever. beautiful. Um, but it's uh, yeah. I think a lot of it. It's about it's poetry, isn't it? It's not about narrative. It's not like a Hitchcock movie where it's like it's an engine moving forward. No, it's more about you know evoking emotion through image and sound. But it was then a long time before we saw him again, wasn't it? Until Thin Red, Thin Red Line, Line, yeah, twenty years later, which twenty odd years later, and then uh, which I found I found hard going. I have to say, really, yeah, it's just that whole monologue in a monologue. I mean, he's trying to do things with films that films weren't really designed to do. Is to give you in a monologue, it. isn't it's it? Poetry, it's poetry. It's it's not. It's I not understand. Prose. I understand that. But the one thing about a film is it's it it doesn't do particularly well as in a monologue, isn't mm. it? I mean, you read a book for in a monologue, really. I don't know. I think um, it can do if it if it if anyone can do it. Yes, Malik can. And actually, the one I the, I pref- actually have to say I preferred. The one that seems to have been forgotten, uh, he made after that, uh, The New World. I love The New World. And I think, and I suddenly discovered what his trick was. And what it is, is you, he, I, I mean, whether he does or not, I don't know, but this is how it appeared to me, is that he would shoot a sequence and then cut the dialogue out and leave, <laughs> leave the bits in where they weren't speaking. And that's what gives it that kind of weird, hmm. slightly surreal, sort of ethereal feel. But that's exactly right. I mean, because I've read a lot about how he shoots films. And right. he does shoot. There is a script. They do shoot dialogue. But he'll usually cut out most of it. Yeah. The same way he cuts out loads of uh, parts, like 
famous actors in Thin Red Line there's scenes with Martin Sheen and Gary Oldman and the, you've never seen because he cut them out he and, cut them out and there's loads of um, I mean he shoots movies with people and then he just says no you know what that's unnecessary but so, it's like he's, he's giving you the spaces yeah it's really weird the spaces in between in between the, the words which yeah, is yeah and then he fills them with sound uh, with yes. music and then some, some monologues which he records after the fact but, uh, but of which the the fine the the most extreme proponent being the track we're going to play uh, Tree of yeah. Life, which had all that mother, father. <laughs> <laughs> you loved it, didn't you? Yeah, but you, I mean, yeah. you, you can't be on <laughs> you can't be on a film's case just because they have no accents. Accent? No, no, it's not that. It was, I don't know. I mean, I can. It was a film that. What well, I mean, you know, it was a film. What I, you know, ultimately, what the hell do I know? But. You know, well, I yeah, kind of, I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, hated it, hated it, hated it, yeah, loved it, yeah, loved yeah. it, loved it. You know, all the way through. The experience of watching it yeah. was was all of those things. Yeah, yeah. You know, you wonder at that extraordinary, uh, you know, birth of the universe sequence. What's it doing in the middle of this film? Well, I mean, I have an idea, but it's sort of like, in the end, it doesn't matter, does it? I suppose, uh, like a Kubrick film, you've got to watch it a few times and it grows on you. I think he's Kubrick. He's clearly immensely talented, but I yeah. don't think he's quite Kubrick. You what, disagree you mean in terms of like the, but but no, forget not in terms of like who's better, but in the way that sometimes when you watch a Kubrick film the first time, you're like, what was that? And then you watch well, it no, again, d- and it gets better and better and better. Of the more course, you watch it. but do you not think that Kubrick ha- is taking the external view all the time, whereas Malick is trying, trying desperately to get inside the mm. characters well, think, and in you know yeah. so that we can we can literally see the Be world through their, their eyes yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah whereas kubrick has it's this a more cold approach it's, he sits back and points he's like god the, looking down yes on he us. does yeah, and he yeah. points the camera and goes go yeah and uh, but i find that actually in many ways more involved i mm. recently uh, sat through barry linden again oh, that's great but it's a really dispassionate for there's nothing passionate about that film at all really I mean, there is, but... Yeah, I know what you mean. He tells you what's going to happen before it happens. So there's no... He's not trying to build up any kind of uh, suspense no, no. or narrative. He just gives you these characters and and lets them do their thing without making little or no judgment, really. Yeah. It's very... It, some would, some find his stuff clinical in that way because it's kind of like... It's like he puts his... Put rats in, a, like, a lab and he just watches them and makes notes. A subtly compelling note. But I love it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, but they're just different ways of doing things, I know. aren't okay. they? Okay, this is from Tree of Life because okay. we're going to run out of time. Ah. We've got so much to get through and we're not going to get through it.
That's fatherhood. Alexandre de Platt, if I remember correctly, from correct. The Tree of Life. Oh, I did it in a kind of slightly southern accent then. <laughs> Mother, father. How you wrestle inside me? Oh, my God. Oh, Jessica Chastain, <laughs> you're looking mighty fine. Oh, and indeed. Brad Pitt was actually good, wasn't he? Oh, he's amazing. I think he's a good actor. He is. He just he's a, he has a bad he's a terrible taste in choosing roles. Do you think so? I think so. I think you know someone like Colin Farrell. I know you say you don't like him, no. but I can name more Colin Farrell films that I like than Brad Pitt ones. Brad Pitt, uh, Twelve Monkeys, I like. Yeah, that's he was true. good in it. Yeah, it was good. Assassination of Jesse James. Yeah, Seven. Seven. Mm, that's good. What's in the box? What's in the box? We've been saying that a lot this week. Because we had a lot of Amazon deliveries. <laughs> <laughs> Any Gwynny yeah, heads? Yeah. <laughs> Have an Amazon delivery and you can't help it. You go, what's in the box? Um, so we're going to move on to, because uh, I caught up with it last night. I'd never seen it. Mulholland Drive. What? Ooh. So if, if Malik is uh, willfully obscure, he's, um, he's Walt Disney compared to... <laughs> Compared to David Lynch in some ways. Yeah. So what did you th- what did you think? What were your first I impressions? thought it was uh, there were uh, it was it was a film that had amazing sequences in it, really quite brilliant stuff, but made no sense as a whole. Right. And it was like epis- it was it was you know scary. I mean, genuinely bloody terrifying yes. sequences in it. Stuff with the with the guy at the back of the diner. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like that at all. And those two pe- old people the in the box. back of that cab and in the body. <laughs> Jesus, I was, I was crapping myself. That's a scary movie. Yeah. And then there's funny bits, you know, the guy yeah. trying to kill the guy in the yeah, bit yeah. downtown and he shoots the, <laughs> shoots the woman next door. But I mean, really genuinely laugh out loud funny stuff. But utterly incoherent. So, you know, the thing behind that is it was meant to be a TV sh- show. It was meant to be a Twin Peaks thing, yeah. But then they cancelled it. So essentially, he extended the pilot into a into a feature length, and uh, and that's where it comes from. So in a way, a lot of unresolved things. But I, that's what I like about it. I like that I'll never know. I love that it's it's a mystery. It's like that box at the back of the diner. Who knows what's in it? What's in it? But that's yeah. what's fun about it. And it's, actually, it's it, it has huge replay value. You should totally go back to it. I will. Uh, yeah. I think for- it, you know it feels like a film. Full of emotion and um, it's sexy. Yeah, it's I can scary. look at Naomi Watts all day long, frankly. But um, it's incredible. I mean, and, and I know we're going to play some music from this, but yeah, it's, this, that scene in particular is so cool. Uh, the, what's it There's called? something the about it. It's like a night, a lost night out. It's just bizarre. Well, they get up at three in the morning, <laughs> as you and, do, and go downtown. Downtown Los Angeles. The Club, and Club Silencio. Silencio. Silencio, which comes to her in a dream. Mm. That's kind of Lynch thing, isn't it? Things come to people in dreams in Lynch yeah. films. But, I mean, you know, Twin Peaks was, was full of this, wasn't it? It was all those things in one. But It was that high camp drama. It was the... Uh, but do you think he's a bit of a, an American von Trier in that he's kind of yanking our mm. chain? I think he is sometimes... But I think this one, to me, at least, whatever the combination of things, and it all might be an accident, hmm. I think works beautifully. It's well, my I tell you, of his. I, d- I remember now why I didn't sit through it at the time, which actually, incidentally, going off at a tangent, my friends get really confused by that phrase, sit through, like it's some kind of trauma. But that's what, we, that's what exhibitors yes. say, we sit through I it. sat through that thing. <laughs> I didn't walk uh, out. Yeah. Um, uh, 
it's because I think it was the film he made after Lost Highway, wasn't it? Yeah. Which is the point at which I gave up on him. Right, right. Because I'd been a big fan up until that point, Wild at Heart and you know, even Blue Elephant Velvet. Man and Blue Velvet. Blue Absolutely Velvet's fantastic, amazing. fantastic yeah. stuff. And then, then he started to lose, as far yeah. as I could see, lose the plot. And Lost Highway was just a load of tosh, wasn't it? I haven't seen it. Yeah, but it, it was... It was I think I started watching it. But that's exactly what happens with Lost Highway. You start and go, really? Life's far too it's short. It's got Bill Pullman. How bad could it yeah, be? Yeah, but then the character changes halfway through. You know, the actor, uh, he just yeah, changes yeah. from, like, I don't know, somebody to somebody. And it's- yeah, I think it's a fine line. It's kind of like, I think Mulholland Drive gets it right because it, it is so much... I mean, it, I mean, it does go off on different variants, but it is very much Naomi Watts' story in a way. And it's a dazzling piece of filmmaking. Yes, you're you're kind incredible. of in, 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 you know, in awe of the, the, the control over which... This insanity is taking place. The yeah. Battlementi score is incredible. Yeah, because I mean, he's so in it, many... isn't he? Yeah, Battlementi's in it. He's the one oh, of the hoods it? that insists that she makes that that the, they use the actress in the film. Um, I didn't. Um, so I'm going to play this Rebecca Del Rio. Is she a real person? I don't know. Probably. Probably. This sort of Latino version of um, the Roy Orbison, Orbison hit, yeah. where they go to this nightclub. And she sings this song and then passes out, and the, but the song continues. And this strange woman up in the balcony is going, Silencio. <laughs> oh. Yo estaba bien por un tiempo volviendo a sonreír. Luego anoche te vi tu mano El saludo de tu voz te hablé muy bien y tú sin saber que estaba llorando por tu amor llorando por tu Amor, ya 
Rebecca Del Rio from the entirely bonkers, but not quite as bonkers as Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. David Lynch's, so like 2001, I believe. 2001, yeah. 2001. There's a, yeah, there's a couple of 2001 movies here. Mm. Um, and then he did uh, Straight, Straight Story after that. Oh, I liked that. I uh, know a lot of people no, didn't. No, 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 it wasn't Straight Story after. After that, it was the... Uh, that crazy thing, um, Empire. Oh, em- Inland Empire. Em- oh, Inland yeah. Empire. Yeah, that was his I, first I fully digital film, and right. uh, I couldn't handle more than twenty minutes of it. So, actually, what we're going to do now is because we were talking a bit about Kubrick, we're going to do Eyes Wide Shut, which, of course, Naomi Watts has often lived in the shadow of uh, Nicole, Kidman. Nicole Kidman. And actually, I think Naomi Watts a better actress. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But this is an amazing kind of thing, and it's not. It's not survived in the same way as most Kubrick films, has it? How do you Would you mean? agree? Well, its reputation, for the time being, I don't think is it has been revived. <laughs> I don't know. I yeah. think I think it has. Been, I, I, it's funny actually because I went to see um, a screening of this uh, in, at the Barbican some years ago with uh, Jan Harlan oh, okay. Q&A yeah. and Dave Calhoun uh, hosted it, and they were talking about this sort of critical revival of the film. Like I've loved it from day one. Uh, I know many people haven't. I mean, Martin Scorsese called it the best film of the 90s. I, I absolutely adored it I when I first incredible. saw it. Yeah. It's an incredible achievement, and I think it's as good as any of his best stuff. I think the problem I have with it is is Cruz and Kidman. Hmm. In many ways, I'd much preferred it not to have been two high-wattage film stars who also happened to be husband and wife in real right. life. It kind of, for me, distracted a little bit from hmm. the story. I think, again, it's, it's one of these, like the, all the Kubrick ones, because, you know, when, when Ryan O'Neill was cast in Barry Lyndon, mm. he was a massive star, a teen idol. You know, Love Story had been two years before. And probably for seven, 1975 audiences, that was quite distracting. But 30, 40 years later, you forget. we don't care. No. And we just see this incredible performance from Ryan O'Neill. Mm. So I think, I think it's like Kubrick made films for... You know, not for the decades, but for the sort of for the hundredths, for the centenaries. <laughs> you know, he made them for a hundred years. I think you're right. I think in in an odd sort of this is a really weird analogy I'm going to come up with now. It's a bit like the difference to me between um, Pixar and DreamWorks. Yeah. People love DreamWorks pictures, but they are not going to last because no. they make jokes about. Kanye West yes. and and all this kind of zeitgeisty stuff, yeah. whereas the Pixar's are very careful yeah, to make their films the classics, like you know, an old Disney film that can, yeah. that you can still watch Snow White because it doesn't refer later. to exactly. you know uh, they're classic fairy tales told in a mo- with modern technology, and I think Kubrick does the same Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, he's telling know. stories about love. I mean, it's based on a a, a novel from the 18th century, the, mm. the Schlitzner uh, book, so it doesn't really matter. You know, Tom Cruise will be long forgotten, and Kubrick will will stand. Will stand. Yeah, yeah they, I thought the <laughs> some of the sets were a bit. You know, you could see that wasn't New York, couldn't but that, you? But that's the whole point. I mean, back to the dreaming thing of it. Mm. Uh, you could, you could. Inter- I mean, you could interpret that the whole thing is a dream. When he comes back at the end and says to her, she says, "I, I was there was a dream, and there were all these men, and you know, it's yeah. a mirror reflection of what he was actually doing." So. Was was he dreaming? Was she dreaming? I think mm. part of the unreality of those sets wasn't just about Kubrick not wanting to fly. I think part <laughs> of it was, you know, he was trying to construct because you know an fake, imaginary version of New York because they've constructed fake New Yorks all over the world all the time and they look fine. But this one was particularly mm. unreal. Okay, so we're going to play. Uh, it's actually a piece of uh, what would you call it? Source me? No, that's not right. Um, 
Baby did a bad, bad thing by uh, Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac. Yeah. And again, I just wanted to say before we played it, this is kind of fairly unusual for Kubrick. He didn't do this very often, like go, whoa, that's a cool track. He <laughs> didn't, I mean, because that's the effect it has in the yeah, film, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Because they used it in the trailer. And as soon as the trailer comes, you go, whoa, that's cool. And, and it was unusual for Kubrick. I mean, he used a lot of music that he'd brought in from outside but he he wasn't flashy you know in the way a tarantino you know you say little green yeah, bag at the beginning we'll use oh, you, Jimmy Shelter yeah and you go yeah. oh that's amazing oh, it's cool but <laughs> kubrick didn't do that very often but he no. did with this which is kind of interesting uh uh here we go Me. That came in a bit. So we have exactly one minute and 45 seconds left. Oh, no. It's been a fantastic show. Thank you, John. Yes, it's, been it's been absolutely brilliant. Have you enjoyed yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. And we've we've only got through, what, two-thirds of the list? We could we could do this for hours. We could. <laughs> Perhaps we won't switch to automatic. We'll just keep going. <laughs> I think I might be fired if I did that. 
No, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for coming along. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. The Kevin Markwick Show is over. Two more shows to go. Next week, uh, I think I will be recorded because I'm going to be in Barcelona at Cine Europe. And then um, the week after will be the last one of the series. When I think I'm on my own. And hello, podcasters. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to spread the word. And we'll leave you with... uh, This is from Requiem for a Dream, which has been used in every trailer known to man, particularly the Lord of the Rings one, I think. Oh, here we go. Clint Mansell. That's right, it'll last. (laughs) Okay. Once again, thanks for listening. Night-night, everyone. I love you all. (laughs) 